0: Normally I try to have an interesting, well I think interesting, sermon introduction for you. Something that will lure you into the passage and make this relatable to you. Uh, But today that's not the case. What's going on here in the Garden of Gethsemane is unique. It's perhaps the darkest passage in the entire Bible and, and even more than that, one of the darkest moments throughout the history of the world. And yet it's something that none of us can relate to. Sure, you hear people refer to their own Gethsemane experiences, those dark moments that we all face, that we go through in our lives, Uh, but as horrible and as tangible as those experiences are, none of them is like this. See, you and I, we can't understand what's happening to Jesus here. The movies can't do this scene justice. Even what I say here won't take you into the black hole of the feelings and the turbulence that Jesus experiences. What he experiences here, he experiences alone. And so listen, this morning, don't tune me out. Don't distance yourself from Jesus. My intent isn't to push you away or push us away from his experience or make us detached from it. What we'll see today is that ultimately while we may not be able to relate to Jesus here, this moment is very applicable for all of us. And so as we go through this passage, what we want to see here today is just, uh, just a few points. One, we want to see the firmness of Jesus in this moment. Two, we want to see the feebleness of the disciples. Just some alliteration there for you so you, so you can follow along. So these will serve as the main points, but there are also some other things that we, we want to touch on in this passage. And so before we jump into this, let's, let's just remember the context. What's going on here that leads up to this moment here in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, the mood is dull. It's heavy with sorrow. Although the Passover celebration is in just a few hours, the the very next day, nobody here amongst Jesus and the disciples is celebrating. We're doing anything close to celebrating. The disciples are coming off of hearing some of the worst news that they've ever received from Jesus, that they'll all fall away from him. And Peter specifically, because of his blind resolve to want to stand by Jesus in this moment, He receives even worse news than the others. He'll deny Jesus three times before the night is over. So, again, any joy that they may have been experiencing has been sucked out of the room for these guys. The disciples are sorrowful. And so, now after coming to the Mount of Olives, verse 32 says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane. So, Jesus and his disciples arrive at this garden called Gethsemane, named after an oil press. It's there where they would take uh, olives, and they'd take a, a large basket of olives, place them on this large press which was moved by a donkey or some animal, and, and that press would slowly crush those olives, making oil. This is the place where Jesus has come with his disciples several times before to, to get away, to pray, and to relax. And so when he arrives here again, he tells his disciples to sit here while I pray. And so going a little further, Jesus continues with just th- with three of his closest followers, Peter, James, and John. These are the three guys who were with him when he stood with Moses and Elijah on another mountain where he was transfigured. And so it's up to this point that we've seen the same Jesus that we've seen all throughout this gospel. We've seen the Jesus who's in control. We've seen the Jesus who isn't caught off guard or shaken in any circumstance or situation that he finds himself in. But now the Jesus that Peter, James, and John witness here began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And so it's here we begin to see the firmness of Jesus in his darkest hour. So what Mark is saying here in these verses is that Jesus began to be astonished, struck with amazement, struck with amazement or dread or filled with sorrow. This now became evident on Jesus' appearance, on his countenance. The Jesus who was once so in control of whatever situation he found himself in now appeared to be caught off guard, astonished, distressed. His face was once shone so brightly, so powerfully at the mountain of transfiguration was now pale. It was damp and seemingly uncertain in this moment. And the words that Jesus spoke next corresponded with his countenance. He said, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch. And so verses 35 through 36 continues, stating, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it was possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So the first characteristic that describes the firmness of Jesus here, if we were to look at some characteristics that describe his his strength and his firmness in this moment, the first one that we see here is his humanity in this moment. In this moment, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the God-man, one who is fully God, but who's also fully human. And here Jesus is in this garden, and he's now leaning into the emotions that he's feeling. He's wiping the sweat. His eyes are becoming blurry with tears. He's beginning to feel the the throbbing headache from the rush of blood that's going to his head. So much so that Luke's account tells us that he began to experience a condition called hemidrosis, where a person begins to sweat drops of blood. And Jesus goes on a little further, then he falls on the ground, collapsing under the weight of this burden. His human body is now breaking under contemplation of what he's about to face. The Jesus that we see here is human. And as a human, he's experiencing some of the very same psychological and physical emotions that you and I are wired to experience. See, so often we're we're taught to be emotionally unbreakable or emotionally indestructible in the moments of suffering or pressure or distress. And sure, while it's it's noble in many accounts, we look up to and even want to, to emulate the strength of individuals in their moments of suffering or in their moments before death. The courageous and unmoved martyr who doesn't flinch in the face of torture or suffering or the stoic philosopher who boldly yet calmly welcomes death. But that's not what we see here from Jesus. Here we see a Jesus who's weak, who's stressed. He's experiencing these emotions. His humanity is on full display. And although we may not be able to relate to why he's experiencing these emotions, he certainly relates to us in this experience. And this is why this makes him, as the book of Hebrews calls him, a great high priest for us one who's able to relate to us, one who's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. So the next characteristic that, that describes the firmness of Jesus in this moment is his vulnerability. Now, the dictionary defines vulnerability often as something negative, as being open to injury. But we know that's not always the case with this word. In this moment here, Jesus, he's not running from his feelings. He isn't attempting to hide them or be dishonest about them. He certainly isn't reckless with his emotions, but they are definitely visible. The disciples aren't having to pull teeth to try to figure out what's going on with Jesus in this moment. It's clear. It's evident. And furthermore, Jesus' words communicate his vulnerability, both to the disciples and to God. That's where he says, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. So forget walling up his emotions. Forget protecting himself from whatever the disciples might think of them if they they saw him like this. Forget the discomfort that comes from admitting that you don't actually have it all together here, Jesus. Jesus is being open in this moment with three of his closest disciples, and although he may not need their sympathy or their support in the sense that he could be deficient in any way, What he's doing is he's letting them in on the experience about what's about to happen to him by being honest about it. And he's essentially saying to them, guys, listen, I know that I said I was going to die soon. I know I foretold you about it, but right now I could just, I could just cave in. I could just die from the stress of contemplating it. So next we see his vulnerability before God. Verse 35, it says, Jesus that he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. So now notice the vulnerability of Jesus before God in prayer. See, again, Jesus has known about his death for some time, and he's foretold it to his followers, his disciples, three times up to this point. But as the moment's getting closer, now he's just being honest about what he feels about it. This is Jesus being open before God, content with his Father's will, yet he's contending with his Father about the way in which it must happen. Listen, Lord, Father, I'm all about what you are trying to do here. I'm not asking you to abandon it. I'm not asking you to to do something else. I'm just asking if there's another way that this can be done. I'm asking if it's possible that there's another way out of this. Lastly, what points to Jesus' firmness in this moment is his response, which is prayer. In verse 36, we see the words of prayer that Jesus offered up to his Father in the midst of his agony. And so his vulnerability and his honesty, they pour through in this prayer, but we also see his intimacy and his full and complete dependency upon God. See from the outset in this prayer, Jesus refers to God as Abba, as Daddy. This would have been a term that would have been regarded as disrespectful by many Jews in this day because of the everydayness that it carried. They would have never applied this term to God, but Jesus here unconventionally refers to God as Abba, as Daddy in this moment, because he's resting and trusting in the relationship that he has with God, like a child trusting and resting confidently in his father. And again, as Jesus instructed the disciples to pray just a few chapters earlier, to have faith in God, faith is at the very foundation of this prayer. Jesus is approaching his Father in prayer, not demanding an expected outcome, as if God were his servant or some genie. No, but instead, Jesus is humbly approaching his Father, appealing to who he is, the sovereign God for whom nothing is impossible, the great and the good God. And on the basis of this, Jesus makes this request, remove this cup from me. So in these verses that Jesus is, we now see him praying. He's prayed that the hour might pass from him and that the cup might be removed from him. But what does this mean? What do these terms even mean? What are they referring to? Are they simply just about the violent beatings that, and the death that Jesus will face by the Romans or the betrayal that he'll face from Judas when the, the, when the Jews come to arrest him in a minute? As horrific and as terrible as all of these things are, as much as the betrayal sting, as much as the rejection hurts, as much as the beatings will break and send shattering waves of pain through his body, the prayers that Jesus offers here are about much more. There is about something much greater that's coming upon him. Some commentators note that when Jesus refers to the hour, he's referring to the events which lead up to and include the cross, the most violent way that anyone could suffer or be killed. And so for that reason alone, I think we'd all agree that the request that Jesus makes here is a reasonable one. But what about this cup? What's this cup that he's talking about? The cup isn't something that Jesus makes up here. He isn't just referring to the physical sufferings that he'll face. He isn't just referring to the emotional and the mental turmoil that he finds himself in presently. No, this cup that Jesus refers to goes as far back as the Old Testament. It goes as far back to the Hebrew Scriptures and where many prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel use this image of the cup as a picture of God's judgment and His wrath that will fall upon God's people or the nations that were in rebellion against God. God would give them this cup of judgment to drink down. And so this cup of wrath and judgment from God would destroy nations. It would cause them to stagger and stumble and bring them to destruction and ruin. So to state it briefly, this cup is punishment. It's punishment for sin and rebellion against God. It's destroyed nations, it's destroyed continents, and it's even once destroyed and flooded the world. It's the cup that multitudes who perish in rebellion against God now presently and continue to drink even as they remain separated from God forever. And now it's this cup that will fall on Jesus. This is what Jesus will drink. This is what his humanity is trying to process in this moment. This is what is causing him to sweat blood through his pores. This is what's causing the sovereign and in control son of God to stumble and stress about. And sure, Jesus has been aware of the knowledge that he will drink this cup and experience this punishment. But when has ever, when his previous knowledge of something bad ever softened actually experiencing it? No, this is now hitting home. The wrath and the punishment of God is what's causing Jesus to request another way out. And so as Jesus continues praying and crying out to his father, asking him if there's any other way for his will to be accomplished, he says something remarkable. He says this, yet not what I will, but what you will. So listen, before I try to explain this, before I try to explain these remarkable words, if I'm honest, I can think of so many things that I would do, have done, and and would rather do other than what Jesus does here. I've never faced the cup of God's wrath in the way that Jesus faces it here, but I've faced far less frightening sufferings and situations, and in the face of some of the hardest things that I've ever had to process, if I'm honest, I detach. I come undone. I become angry at God. I attempt to do what is, whatever is necessary in order to change the circumstances. I disobey. I pursue my will instead of God's. Maybe you've done the same. But here in his response to this circumstance, Jesus doesn't bail on God. He doesn't detach himself from the situation. He doesn't become angry at his father. He doesn't look for ways to divert the situation or change the circumstances. He doesn't demand that God make some other way. And he doesn't begin to turn the volume up on his own desires so that they drown out the voice and the will of God. No, Jesus, he submits to the will of God. He obeys his Father, even in the midst of wrestling with the circumstances. In the words of a pastor named Tim Keller, in saying this, Jesus, he relinquishes control over his circumstances and submits his desires to the will of the Father. And so it's here that Jesus now leans into the will of God because of his love for God. Jesus is honest about his feelings. He's vulnerable before God, but his love for God, his submission to his father's will, his recognizing his daddy's greater plan overpowers the temptation to make this about him and just bolt. And so he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is prayer, brothers and sisters. Yes, Jesus instructed the disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer back in Matthew chapter 5 and 6. But this here is the Lord's Prayer. Jesus praying to his Father. This is what prayer is. It's coming openly, honestly, vulnerably before God in all the weakness of your humanity and casting yourself in the, upon the fullness and strength of your Heavenly Father. It's bringing your burdens to God, looking to his power. And like Jesus instructed his disciples just chapters earlier, requesting whatever it is that you ask, but it's then aligning yourself, leaning in, loving in, and submitting yourself in full dependency to God's purposes. Whether you receive whatever it is you're asking for or not, because ultimately you recognize that he's greater That your father is greater. He is good. Again, you and I, we don't face the same circumstances that Jesus does in this garden. But perhaps this morning you you face your own divided desires. Maybe you face a tough situation or a circumstance that emotionally tears you in half between trusting in your own abilities to solve the problem and trusting in God's will. Maybe you're here and you've been attempting to control the circumstance by just covering up all the emotions and all of the feelings, protecting yourself from rejection and from disappointment, walling off God and others from seeing your struggle, ultimately fearing dissatisfaction and disappointment if you actually trusted in the will of God. Listen, if that's you here today, go to God in prayer. Turn to him, cast yourself on him in full dependence. Recognize his greatness and his supremacy above all things. Know that his plan is greater. His will is greater. This is the firmness of Jesus in the darkest moment of his life. Even as he stands alone in bearing this cup and facing this hour, he remains focused. He remains perfectly obedient to his Father, even as he wrestles with the very real emotions and desires that, uh, that attempt that tempt him to act to the contrary. Again, this high priest that we have, who relates to our human weaknesses, yet is, that is without sin, he's able to bear with us and relate to us, even in the most emotionally chaotic moments of our lives. So listen, we will continue to proceed. I feel like this could be a sermon in itself, and I feel like there's so much more we could say about Jesus in this moment. It would be nice if we could just sit here on this passage for the rest of the time. But there's some other characters in this passage, right? The disciples. They're the eight at the entrance of the garden, and then they're the three who are just an earshot a few yards away from Jesus. <clears throat> what are they doing? If firmness characterizes Jesus in this moment, what? Well, what word could be used to describe them? Well, if you look at back, back at verse 32, Jesus tells the eight to, to sit here while I pray. And in verse 34, Jesus tells Peter, James, and John to remain here, while, and remain here and watch. And so they're supposed to be watching, keeping alert, even praying. But this has been a brutal evening for these guys. News of betrayal, both Judas' betrayal and them, Jesus' impending death, the fact that he's leaving them after these three wonderful years of life and ministry, look, that's a lot to process if you're the disciples. But they don't seem to process it in the same way that Jesus does. I mean, do they ever? So Jesus, he takes an interval from praying after an hour, and he's confronted by the feebleness of the disciples. In verse 37, it says that, and he came and he found them sleeping. Sleeping. Well, in case you're surprised, this is an abnormal behavior for the disciples. When Jesus stood with Moses and Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration and he began to be transfigured before them, they were doing the same thing. They were were caught slipping in the same way, catching their necks. But this time, the situation is much more imminent See, they saw the distress on the face of Jesus. They heard it from his own mouth that he was distressed, even to the point of death. And yet, as soon as Jesus turns, turns, his, turns his back on them begins to walk away to go pray, the disciples are slowly lured into temptation, lured to sleep, lured to trusting in their own sufficiency. So from verses 36 through 42, we can see the feebleness of the disciples And like Jesus, the characteristics of their feebleness can be described in the same terms. Their humanity, their vulnerability, and their response. But unlike Jesus, they fall short of remaining firm in this moment. And so Jesus approaches Peter, James, and John only to find them sleeping. And like Jesus, their humanity is on display here. But for them, it's their fallen humanity. Now look, I'll be the first one to say that there is nothing wrong with a little sleep. As a matter of fact, I'm probably gonna take a nap after this is all done today. But look, unlike Jesus, these disciples are instructed. They're even encouraged to watch, to to stay awake, and to be alert. And yet, they can't. They won't. And remember, just a passage earlier, last week, these are supposed to be the loyal and strong disciples. They've blindly regarded themselves just moments earlier as strong, courageous, fearless. They're supposedly the same guys who pledged their allegiance to Jesus just minutes earlier about dying with him before they denied him, especially Peter. I mean, if you just look at verse 31, Peter vehemently and emphatically declares this to Jesus, saying, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. But now he's asleep. He's asleep which is why what Jesus says to Peter in verse 37 is so ironic. Simon, Simon, are are you asleep? Simon, you're asleep? Come on, man. You're supposed to be that guy. You remember what you just said an hour earlier that you would stand firm with me and would never deny me? You'd die with me? But now you're asleep. See, the plight of the disciples here, what's going on with them is that they don't know themselves. They fail to see the presence of their own sinfulness and weakness, and they fail to recognize their own frailty. And so the result, they feel like they don't need to watch and pray. They feel like they're sufficient in and of themselves to stand firm in this moment, which now leads us to the next characteristic of their feebleness, their vulnerability. So Jesus continues speaking to them, instructing them this time to watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. What's Jesus cautioning them them against here by telling them this? Vulnerability. He's telling them to watch, to pray, to keep awake, to guard yourself. The disciples here, they're displaying vulnerability, but not in the same way as Jesus. See, they're vulnerable. They're open to injury. They're vulnerable to the sifting of their faith. And unlike Jesus, they're not being honest about their feelings towards God. They're looking to escape their feelings and their emotions in this hour. They're looking to escape them through sleep. See, this isn't the itis. This isn't coming from a great meal or a long day. This is the kind of sleep that you long for when the stress is too much. The kind of sleep where you just want to shut it down for the day because it's just been that kind of day. And this is why Jesus is telling them to pray for themselves. See, they aren't expressing to God their discomfort and their sorrow in this moment. They're sulking in it. They aren't fighting against temptation in this garden. They're exposing themselves to it. And now they're vulnerable to its grasp, to its reach. And so Jesus now continues encouraging them encouraging them by saying, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Now stop for a second. What? Who is encouraging who? Jesus is encouraging them? I mean, he's the one with the insurmountable pressure on him. He's the one who's been sweating drops of blood. He's the one that's going to die. And yet he makes time to concern himself with them, to care for them, to shepherd these weak and weary sheep. What an amazing shepherd Jesus is, to essentially come to them, to say to them, listen, guys, I I understand you want to do the right thing. You want to be here with me. You want to be here for me. That's great. But listen, there is something within you that is working against what you want to do and it's coming for you and you, you're exposing yourself to it in this moment. And Jesus is saying, listen, because I know you, I know you're weak. I know you're sinful, which is why I knew what I said in that prophecy just a passage ago, that you will all fall away. I know that a very real part of you wants to give in and just cave in this moment and just completely turn away. Listen. Prepare yourselves for this inward crisis. Fight against it. Watch against it. Guard yourselves against it. Strategize against that which in you which wants to give in to this temptation. Pray. Watch. The spirit is willing. It's eager. But the flesh is weak. A word literally meaning it's unable. It's helpless. It's sick. It's ill. So Jesus' encouragement to them is caring. It's loving. It's gracious. But again, they're asleep. And so what Jesus wants them to know, what Jesus wants us to know in this moment is that prayer is the only effective strategy, the only effective strategy in fighting against the temptation and the strength of our own sinful desires. Apart from turning towards God in complete dependency, casting ourselves on Him, in humility and in faith, apart from that, we're weak. We're ineffective in our fight against sin. So lastly, we see the feebleness of the disciples ultimately displayed in their response. In verses 39 through 40, it says, Jesus went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Time number two. Once again, these disciples are asleep and their eyes are heavy due to sorrow, and so Jesus returns again for the second time to find them in the same state that he found them in the first time, sleep. But this time, they did not know what to answer him. What is that? They haven't been praying. They haven't been watching. Jesus comes to them again, and now they're speechless. They're dumbfounded. They're ashamed. And yet just beneath that, they're apathetic. They're cold to Jesus' words, cold to the moment, only thinking about themselves and their experience even hardened. So instead of responding in prayer, turning towards God as Jesus has done and is instructing them to do, their divided desires have led them in another direction toward the path of their own self-sufficiency. They're weak. And to an extent, they can't even help themselves. They find no strength in themselves, and through neglecting prayer, they find no strength in God. So in verse 41, Jesus comes to them a third time. And he says to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus came to them three times. Note that, three times. Three times and the disciples can't get it together. Three times and all they can do is sleep, sorrow, and sulk. They've epically failed in this moment. And now the moment's over. It's done. Is it any coincidence that Jesus comes to them three times? Is it any coincidence that Jesus had just told Peter a few hours earlier that he would deny him three times? No. See, this isn't Jesus giving Peter, James, and John and I told you so, but rather he's, he's gracefully exposing their well-intentioned yet deceitful hearts in this moment. He's shifting them away from putting confidence in themselves and in their own strength by exposing what's really in them. And for both parties, this, this hurts. It's glaring. It's painful to see this. Peter, if if you can't even stand firm in this trial, this small trial, if you can't even stay awake in this moment, how are you going to stand against what's coming? You see, the disciples, when they were once so willing before entering this garden, when they were once so willing at the Passover meal, when they were once so willing at the triumphal entry to stand firm with Jesus, in reality, they now find themselves as weak, weak, And look, Jesus knows this. He knows this. They're the only ones who don't know this. And So Jesus is alone in his suffering in this passage. He's the only one who stands firm. He's the only one who remains obedient, the only one who remains faithful. He stands alone in this hour just before he alone bears this cup. But he also stands alone in this moment with no support from those closest to him. See, although you and I can't directly relate to what Jesus is experiencing here in the Garden of Gethsemane, if we're honest, we know the disciples' plight all too well. This moment exposes them, but it also exposes us. See, we often regard ourselves as loyal, courageous, strong, dedicated, fearless. But in these moments of weakness, in the moments where we're to be watching, to be keeping alert, to be depending on God, praying, resisting sin, if we're honest, we don't. And if we're really honest, in our own strength, we can't. We're weak, we're feeble. We submit to our desires and we attempt to control the circumstances only to be left ashamed, apathetic, even cold to the words of Jesus and to the will of God. And just like the disciples, we don't know ourselves. But we think we do, which is why we make all these professions and all these estimations about ourselves and our strength, even in the face of a history that says otherwise. And the truth is that Jesus just diagnoses us for who we are and what we are, willing but weak, fronting on our loyalty and our commitment. So in this moment of weakness, perhaps in your own moments of weakness and temptation, the encouragement for us from this is don't turn to your own abilities. Don't rely on Strength that you've convinced yourself that you have. Instead, turn to the only one who is firm. Turn to the only one who is strong in these moments of suffering and temptation. Turn to the only one who is perfectly obedient, perfectly firm, perfectly strong in these moments. Turn to Christ. And so before we close, let's just, let's just take a step back for a moment. We've seen the firmness of Jesus in this moment, and we've seen the feebleness of the disciples. And so in typical Mark fashion, this passage ends rather abruptly with Jesus rebuking the disciples and and waking them up, letting them know that the hour is here. And so while they're most likely not ready, it appears that Jesus is. He goes from distressed and troubled to resolute and assured. His words here, it is enough, communicate that the matter is settled. What he's prayed for in this moment has been answered. And therefore, Jesus proclaims that the hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And so look, I didn't mention this point in the introduction, but if these verses were to point to something in addition to the firmness of Jesus and the feebleness of the disciples, they also point to the faithfulness of God. See, it's this that stands out so clearly when we look back to the prayer of Jesus in this passage. See, up to this point in his ministry, we've read about God the Father responding to Jesus both audibly and visibly on certain occasions, at his baptism, at his transfiguration. But here, when we see Jesus crying out to the Father in anguish, in lament, he gets no such response. No cloud, no voice, no thunder, no prophets, no doves. We see nothing. We hear nothing. But is this necessarily a bad thing? Does this mean that God just didn't respond? No. The Father did respond. And the Father's response in this moment was a silent no. What does this mean? What does this mean that God said no to Jesus? Does this mean that God's a deadbeat father neglecting the care of his son? Does this mean that there was really no other way for an all-powerful God to execute his justice and his wrath on sin? What does this mean? See, while for Jesus the the silent response from the Father means that God will not remove this cup and that ultimately he will face death. For the disciples, for us, this silent no means so much more. It means that God will not give us the cup. God won't give us the cup. See, as painful as this cup of punishment and wrath will be to drink, it doesn't actually belong to Jesus. He's done nothing to deserve this cup. He has no place in it, which is why he can even pray for the possibility for it to be removed in the first place. He's done nothing to deserve this punishment or wrath from God, and yet there he lays on the ground, sweating, bleeding, distressed, terribly amazed with fear because he knows how severe this punishment will be if he bears it, and he knows he doesn't have to do it. But us, on the other hand, This cup has our names engraved on it. It has its sights set on us. This cup is filled with the the punishment for all of our rebellion against God, individually and corporately, all the ways that we've sinned against him, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our motives, from the youngest of us to the oldest of us. This cup is filled with justice for all of our crimes, all of our failures, all of our weaknesses. All of the ways we've given in to temptation and to weakness. All of the ways that we pursued our will over and above God's will. You and I, we deserve this cup. We deserve to spend the rest of our days and all of eternity drinking this cup and staggering, stumbling, and being destroyed from its effects. But God said... No. In saying, no, I will not remove this cup to his beloved, perfectly obedient son, God says, no, I will not give you this cup to us, to sinners, to the imperfect, to the disobedient, to the weak. And it's this that points to God's faithfulness. Here we see the faithfulness of God on display because this is the same plan from God that he's been faithful to from before the foundation of the world. It's the same plan that God has been faithful to that he would accomplish through the sinful line of humans who would disobey him, fail him, rebel against him, and turn away from him all the way up until Jesus. It's the same plan that God has remained faithful to, to exalt his son above all things and glorify him. It's the same plan that God has remained faithful to that he would establish to redeem a fallen and broken people through sending his eternal son to die in our place for our sin and then be resurrected so that sinners like you and I might become sons and daughters of God and glorify him and enjoy him forever. This was the only way. This points to God's faithfulness. God is faithful to his plan. So faithful that he would tell his son in the darkest moment of history, no. And Jesus is faithful to his father's plan. So faithful, so content with his will that he would choose to come into this world experiencing the full measure of our humanity and then live a perfect, God-pleasing, God-honoring life in our place and then die drinking the cup and bearing the punishment and wrath that you and I deserve. Back to the introduction, you want to know why you and I cannot relate to Jesus, his experience here in this garden? The reason that you and I can't relate, the reason that you and I cannot put ourselves in his shoes in this moment is because Jesus relates to us. He puts himself in our shoes. He makes it so that we will never have to relate to him in this sense. And this is the faithfulness of God on display. that while we were weak, while we were feeble, while we were fallen, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, I'll close with the words of a pastor named Tabidiana Buile, who said about this passage, we're not to think no answer was given on that amazing night in Gethsemane. Neither are we to think that the father's silent no indicated a purposeless neglect as though God the Father were a divine deadbeat dad. We're to understand that the only perfect father found occasion to deny the only perfect son because such denial achieved the only perfect ends. A perfectly qualified high priesthood, reconciliation through the only God-man mediator, Loving atonement for the sins of men, the vindication of the Father's righteousness, and the ever-redounding glory of the Father in the Son and the Son in the Father. Gethsemane's silent answer will eternally be heard in the joyous praises of the universe. Listen today, as we take communion, as we receive the broken body and the blood that was shed, be reminded of two things. Be reminded of your own weakness, your own frailty, your sin, all the ways that you've failed God, all the ways that you've succumbed to temptation, to weakness. And like Jesus, in in that moment of thinking about that tremble, be greatly amazed, be sorely distressed at the punishment that your sin deserves. But the second thing, know that Jesus has borne the weight of that punishment, of your sin upon himself so that you wouldn't have to. Be reminded of that as you take the broken body, as you take the cup. And for those of you who may may not be familiar with Jesus, who he he says himself to be, who God says him to be in in the scriptures, in passages like this. Take this time to remain at your seat. Take this time to to examine yourself. What is your conscience saying to you about all the ways that you've been weak, all the ways that you've failed, all the ways that you've fallen short of your standard and God's standard? And in response to that, pray. Go to God, see what Jesus has borne. See how he's borne the punishment for your sin and your weaknesses and your failures and pray to him. Ask him for forgiveness, ask him for grace, ask him for mercy, for joy. His response will be yes, because he responded to his son, no. And as you're sitting at your seat, watch those who are weak, who don't have it together, who failed, who've fallen short, receive strength from the broken body of Christ and the bloodshed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Father, we confess our weaknesses, our failures, all the ways that we've denied you, we've fallen short. Help us to bring these to you in this moment as we, as we are reminded and refreshed about your good news of what you've done for us in our place for our sins. Help us to find encouragement in this moment, joy, as we receive your grace, as we receive your goodness. May these words stay with us and continue to convict us. In the name of your son we pray, amen.